0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Fine-Tuning the Wave of Innovation in RCC, Personalized Management Across the Disease Spectrum. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash dgx860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available
1: all right welcome everybody thanks so much for coming out on this first day of asco uh, it's wonderful to see everyone here uh, we've got a fantastic evening planned for you tonight uh, we're going to be discussing new innovations in renal cell carcinoma with a really terrific faculty that i'll introduce in a moment we're actually going to focus a little less on the didactic i'm really going to try to spice it up with a lot of interesting case discussions to keep everybody here on their toes um, and we've got a terrific uh, phenomenal panel that we'll go through in just a moment here My name is Monty Palin, I'm a medical oncologist at City of Hope in Los Angeles. And uh, our goals today are to really augment your understanding of the knowledge of the efficacy and safety of approved agents for renal cell carcinoma. We're really gonna talk about personalizing therapies across various clinical scenarios and give you some guidance in terms of how to mitigate side effects. Now, uh, we really want to thank KC Cure, our partner in all of this, uh, Dina Battle, who is really uh, the origin of KC Cures here in the audience today. Um, And they've done a tremendous job in terms of really reflecting the patient voice and a lot of the work that they've done over the years. You're going to see some of the patient-centered research that they've done peppered through our presentations with a lot of the uh, clinical trial data. And I think that's really important as we try to contextualize these therapies. Um, now, first, I'm going to introduce a dear friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Pedro Barada. Um, he's the director of geomedical Medical Oncology at Case Western. We've all followed his career with a lot of really sort of uh, uh, serious intent. He's a rising star in the field, and he's going to be discussing perioperative options in real cell. Pedro? So Monty, really, you know, pleasure. Thank you for the invitation.
2: Thank you guys so much for being here with us and spend decide to spend the evening at ASCO, right, really busy for everybody. You know, and including seeing some a lot of friends and colleagues uh, in the audience as well. So let's get things started. I'm going to try and fly through the slides so we have fun time uh, during the discussion. Um, So let's start with localized non-metastatic RCC, right? So we know that. We have a lot of success stories with systemic therapies uh, in the perioperative setting for a lot of solid tumors, but you know, for whatever reason, that doesn't seem to be quite the case yet, at least specifically think about neoadjuvant, you know, the data kind of seems to be lacking still to support use of neoadjuvant approaches for kidney cancer. We know that surgery is the gold standard, Uh, we can cure people, unfortunately, the risk of recurrence for patients, specifically stage 2, stage 3, it's not insignificant, right? It can go between, you know, sometimes to 20 to 40 percent, sometimes even higher for patients um, who end up uh, getting post-surgery a recurrence at any point in time. So currently, we do not have approved, uh, you know, neoadjuvant or preoperative systemic therapies available. That is true. That sometimes in clinical practice we have some discussions on a case-by-case basis, but not as a standardized approach. And um, you know, and the standard of care right now for patients who underwent surgery is to discuss uh, uh, TKI and as well as immunotherapy. And I think I've go through that data. So again, think of neoadjuvant just to remind us where we are. Not standard of care. It can be yet and still be used uh, in selected cases, and we, you know, we discuss all the time in our tumor boards. Uh, there's a number of different target, therapy, target therapies, uh, particularly angiogenic therapies, uh, being explored have uh, been explored in that space, right? And um, however, responses are relatively modest. We have a little bit more responses in the clear cell subtypes, perhaps up to 20%. If we were to summarize, gross and Mode, you know, the efficacy in the in the clear cell RCC, um, and that number seems to be even lower for um, you know beyond clear cell histologies, non-clear cell subtypes. However, there's some promising or interesting data emerging, and I think we are influenced by what's going on in the advanced setting. So we're testing IO-based approaches in the advanced setting, an opportunity to highlight the data, for example, with axitinib, valumab, uh, the new FX that basically um, you know, reveal reports of around 30% of tumor shrinkage um, in, the, in the kidney. And you know, we don't, it doesn't seem like we lose the opportunity for cure in those individuals by offering a adjuvant approach. And there's a number of other studies that are currently recruiting. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with those. So, what is important to set up and changing gears to the adjuvant setting? Patients who received surgery or nephrectomy, partial or radical nephrectomy, you know, and there's always a balance, right, about what we have to do, right? And the balance is between what is the benefit? Can I cure patients? Can I prevent them for coming back, uh, you know, months or years later with progressive or recurrent disease? And you know, in exchange for some potential toxicity and some inconvenience and some financial toxicity associated to whatever we decide to do in that adjuvant space. So I think that balance is always present, and we try to figure it out when it, you know, what is the right balance for the patient we have in front of us, and of course, we have always that in mind when we're thinking of sunitinib or we think about pembrolizumab, you know, or we think about, you know, maybe not doing any of that. And, and so, of course, we'll talk about that um, in the next few slides. So, just to say that in clinic, a lot of us actually sit down and, you know, look at the patient in front of us. We look at the, the histology. We look at some characteristics like, you know, si- tumor size, for example. And we, we can use some scores that are really handy and can actually help us to determine or at least to, uh, to predict risk of recurrence. And that number, that score, although patients are not numbers, right? But that score at times can help us make a decision about a role of adjuvant therapy or a yes or no kind of thing, right? So this is an example of some scores that can be utilized in, in clinical practice. So as I mentioned, there were a number of clinical uh, studies, investigated different TKIs, you know, older, newer TKIs, you know, but you see there's a common team, right? You know, there are heterogeneous populations in all these studies. You know, there's one study, only one, that has met the primary endpoint for disease-free survival. All the other studies have been negative, right? And, and I think that's that's relevant because actually that study the ASTRAC, um you know led to the approval by the regulatory agents for sunitinib a year um, you know in those in those patients but we, all the other uh, cases uh, we were um, we failed to demonstrate the benefit in including the ASTRAC trial we actually end up not seeing a survival advantage with that approach we did see prolongation of time to more disease in the scans um, one other line because this trial is relatively recent or is you know one of the perhaps the most uh, recent study with regards to target therapy beyond angiogenic drug this is an mtor inhibitor Everolimus was tested in the adjuvant setting phase three trial Everest it was actually I have to say kudos, it was a big cooperative group effort, there was a lot of oh, effort put God. into this study. And although it was a negative study, I would argue that actually a lot of us did not expect this like near miss, if you will, as you can see, at least statistically speaking, right, when now a ratio of 0.85 for recurrence-free survival, you know, and barely or almost meeting the, the, the pre-specified p-value to meet criteria. Anyway, it's a negative study. Uh, we're not doing it in clinical practice, but I think it's relevant to be thorough just to make sure we, we, we cover all the target therapies we investigate in this space. Now what we really want to talk today a little bit is about immunotherapy, right? So we tested uh, angiogenic therapy, we tested mTOR, and what, what about immune checkpoint inhibitors? And we have a number of studies. I think some of these are very familiar to the audience here. I'll start with Prosper. Prosper is another uh, effort from the cooperative group. He started as a really perioperative design. We were doing three doses of Nivo pre-surgery, followed by the rest of it uh, as adjuvant setting. And then we amended the protocol to do one Nivo <clears throat> pre-surgery, followed by uh, nine doses of Nivolumab afterwards, compared to you know, observation and designed, amended or the updated design is in this, um, in this, in, uh, in this slide. And, you know, the, the safety committee ended up stopping this study uh, at the interim analysis by because we didn't see a benefit. So the first of the studies with checkpoint inhibitors that I'm going to show you tonight, unfortunately, did not beat the primary endpoint. In other words, it did not help patients who were uh, enrolled in this trial. And then we had EMOTION-10, which is, a, you know, a, fairly, a relatively different, more like bread and butter adjuvant study, meaning patients who um, underwent surgery and had uh, intermediate to high-risk disease end up being randomized to a TISO, um you know up to a year uh, or placebo again endpoint for all these trials is disease-free survival and you know and, and this trial was again negative and so you know um, it, it was uh, I won't say shocking but at least you know it did not pan out or it didn't prove uh, to us that actually adjuvant pdl one inhibitor was helpful. Um, And then we saw also recently the data from Checkmate 914. In reality, Checkmate 914 has two cohorts. Um, Here, I'm showing you the cohort uh, A, or the part A, I should say, with epinevo. In this case, it was six months of epinevo compared to placebo. Similar patient population, we were taking, you know, PT2As um, uh, with uh, uh, nuclear-grade 3s or 4s and or above, so N-positive disease or PT3s, PT4s, and, um, you know, we saw this data when a middle follow-up of over three years, a little bit over three years, the trial was also uh, negative, or at least the part A of this study was negative we're getting an update at ASCO regarding a subgroup analysis <clears throat> by Dr. Moser and the group, but bottom line is, you know, we they gave us a lot of pause, right, about um, the role of uh, different checkpoint inhibitors. In this case, a CTLA-4 uh, inhibitor with a PD-1 inhibitor. And finally, we, we leave the best for last, or at least the positive trial in this setting, the Keynote 564. We know, of course, we had great, great work from Dr. Um, uh, Shoueri and, and the team here, you know, presenting this data. A very similar design to, uh, uh, you know, to the Atizio-Adjuvant study in a sense that it's a post-surgery. You're considering patients who have a higher risk for recurrence, so you actually took the intermediate high risk, high risk and post-metastasectomy. So PT2 is grade 4 sarcomatoid, and then PT3, is 4s and positive of disease, and they were randomized to standard uh, year of Pembro versus placebo, and disease-free survival, disease-free survival was the primary endpoint. I think at this point, a lot of us are aware of the data. This is a very important paper, New England, uh, a practice change in my opinion, based on the data you're seeing. This is the primary endpoint, disease-free survival. At the first analysis of around uh, two years, a 24-month follow-up, you'll see there's gross mortality is about 11% or so. Absolute difference in disease-free survival at two years, or with, in other words, 77% disease-free of compared to 68% there. And then you have a follow-up, uh, an updated follow-up, where you, you continue to see that difference, um, you know, uh, of a, a similar delta. What I think I would highlight here is actually the hazard ratio actually goes down. So there's a 32 percent risk reduction in two years that turns out to be 37 percent over time. and I think that speaks you know about um, the positivity of this study it seems to be persistent um, you know with longer follow-up, which is in my opinion is relevant to see. Another aspect that I think is relevant is a breakdown. Again, remember the study was not power to answer the question for specific groups, intermediate high risk, high risk, and post metastasecme. But I do think it's it's important to see that, you know, it's 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 basically you have a, a benefit seen of thirty-two percent, of forty percent and then 72% as you walk from or as you move from the left to the right side of the slide, suggesting that potentially patients who are at a higher risk for recurrence, when you start asking the question, it's not really if they recur, but when they recur, that the benefit seems to be even more um, obvious or evident uh, based on these data. Again, caution, the study was not designed to find those differences, but yet I think is relevant clinically to see how the the, um, numbers behave here. And the other aspect of it, I have to say that OS is immature as we're speaking, right? Overall survival data is immature. However, I do believe it's also relevant to know that at, to note that at two years we see a difference of, uh, of a risk reduction death of 46%. Actually, the, 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 the hazard ratio drops to 0.52, meaning the risk reduction is actually greater, uh, 48%. Um, you know, at a 30-month follow-up, and that kind of seems to be, you know, it seems like patients not only are delaying time to progression, but maybe we're able to talking about cure with the addition of one year of of, of pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting. So um, as we move forward, uh, how can we build on that? So after the approval of pembrolizumab for patients at a higher risk uh, for recurrence, uh, this trial uh, that I'd like to highlight, LightSpark 22, it's building upon the success of, of Keynote 564, and is actually asking the question whether or not the addition or Belzutifan, which is a HIF inhibitor approved for germline VHL, and Dr. Shoueri will get, tell us all about it later th- uh, tonight, and it's building upon the pembrolizumab monotheraps, as you can see there, Pembro is in both arms and you uh, add Belzutifan to Pembrolizumab in the investigational arm. Disease-free survival is a primary endpoint and they're looking for um, 1,600 patients in this trial, um, and uh, this trial is open for accrual, and so I think I'm very excited to um, you know to see when this uh, when the accrual is completed and we see what the results are for this particular study. Again, going back to the question where we started, right? The balance, balancing is so so critical, and I do believe when we look at um, of FDA-approved therapies, pembrolizumab on one end, sunitinib on the other end, these are very different therapies, right? With a very different safety profiles, right? And we have to think that in favor of immunotherapy, of course significant toxicities are much lower, right? There's a question that possibly it might extend overall survival. The data it seems to be promising, is immature. We gotta wait and see. But, um, but that's what we have thus far as a ratio going down over time, you know, and that's of course a confirmation of at least preventing disease recurrence at the two and three months thirty months of follow up excuse me um but then you know you you can of course think about there's always the concern regarding immune mediated adverse events being you know, um, uh, significant or life-threatening in some situations. There's also the financial toxicity, what's the financial burden to patients, and of course the inconvenience, right? We're doing treatments every three weeks, um, although we can, you know, we have the approval to uh, be able to do this every six weeks, which is perhaps more convenient, but the study investigated in a three-week regimen. So nonetheless, there are definitely differences, uh, you know, between Immunotherapy and sunotera, but it's my sense, you know, from from talking to community colleagues, that you know um, the the adoption of immunotherapy has been real, which has not really been the case for, for um, angiogenic Sunutra. I will really highlight, uh, you know, not because KC Kerr is helping us putting this meeting together, but also because they are doing actually fantastic and I should say pioneer work in the kidney cancer arena, you know, because they're actually getting data directly from patients. And it's quite striking to me, at least, to see how they can come up with hundreds and thousands of patients' data and put it in a form of, you know, important papers like this paper, uh, you know, from Dana, you know, uh, 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 Berge, uh, Dr. Bregera, Monty and others, you know, and I think the message that it comes out of this data is really, really relevant. So you can see the emotional well-being you know, and times these diagnosis change, as you see, particularly on the left. So it seems like patients get a lower rate of distress as, you know, time goes by and they remain without recurrence. You know, however, when you look at the fear of cancer recurrence, that remains High over time, and that doesn't seem to drop. So I think that it's an important message as we, you know, as we counsel patients, as we talk to them, as we go through, um, you know, as we see them visits after visits with restaging scans. I think this is very meaningful information to have. And the other piece, you know, of, of the data again from Dana and K. Secure and the group. Look at that! Over a thousand patients, uh, uh, participants in this, in this, um, you know, in this particular uh, study here. Uh, actually, we have, I believe, is in a poster form at this meeting. So I mean, it's the largest meeting. You can get this data out there. You can see, which is to me, is quite interesting, and it shows how different is the message, right? One thing is what the provider communicates with the patient, and the other thing is how is the patient uh, uh, taking that message. And, and that can be many different things, right? And so as you can see for different stages, the question was the perception, <clears throat> the perception of how likely are you to recur, right? And you can see at blue, you have the patient perception and in purple, you have the physician perception. And so basically, um, you know, patients do perceive their recurrence risk to be higher, I would argue significantly higher than actually physicians for a respective stage where patients are. And I think that's really an important message because we are dealing with patients who happen to be dealing with kidney cancer, we're not dealing with kidney cancer. So, so that is important, I, and so kudos to secure for, for getting this data together and showing it to the world. So with that, I'll pass the baton back to Monty, and I'm looking forward to the discussion and the rest of the talks
1: from my colleagues. Thank Pedro, you. Excellent job. Great, Great presentation. You actually kept us right on time, which I really appreciate. So we've got lots of time for some case discussion here. Um, So we're going to look at the case of Maria, who's a seven-year-old patient who presents with gross hematuria. She had the abdominal CT that you see here, which shows this 12-centimeter right-sided renal mass. And she underwent a right-sided radical nephrectomy. It was a 12.1-centimeter tumor at the time of resection. There was some distal renal vein involvement. You can see that it invaded into the perinephric fat with negative margins. It was grade three with clear cell histology. There was some rhabdoid and focal sarcomatoid differentiation, and the final staging with margins negative was T3a, NxMx. She recovers well. In a scenario like this, this is a softball question. So let's see. I'm going to give it to Dr. chuari here. Um, what would you recommend in this particular situation? Surveillance, pembrolizumab, when do focal I see trial? the
0: patient? Is that uh 2018, 19, or today? <laughs>
1: let's, let's say today, let's say today, 2023.
0: Yeah, so this is a patient at relatively, you know, high risk of recurrence, not just the stage. I think here, you know, the rhabdoid and the focal sarcomatoid differentiation are really important despite uh, the post-surgical um, imaging and, you know, I assume then the margins are negative. So this person, I would uh, discuss with adjuvant uh, pembrolizumab, uh, you know, they have clear cell histology, they have everything, they could have met Keynote 564 mm-hmm. uh, criteria.
1: And, and what do you think in terms of eligibility for clinical trials? Would this sort of patient fit the bill for your trial?
0: They, they would fit the bill for the trial that uh, Pedro presented, which is Pembro plus minus HIF2 inhibitor, Uh, They are at relatively higher risk, you know, intermediate grade, but also T3A, sarcomatoid features, the size plays a role. Of course, you can put all these, uh, unfortunately, elements and uh, a clinical and pathologic criteria kind of from the 90s and early 2000s. They haven't changed much. Um, You can put them together into a nomogram and counsel the patient. I would say anywhere between 20 to 60 percent, depending on the nomogram that uh, you pick. You know, unless Dr. Michael Steiler does the surgery, you know, which guarantees 100 percent cure, I, I would have to offer the patient pembrolizumab, probably.
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. So let's say it was Tony's outstanding fellow, Dr. Slibi, that sees the patient. She goes through the imaging and she spots a lung nodule. Okay, and it looks totally resectable. Let's say it's a one centimeter nodule in the right upper lobe. The thoracic surgeons say we can easily cut this out and they do. Uh, Christina, in that situation, you've got a patient who's had this one centimeter lung nodule resected. She has this high risk localized tumor. What, how would your treatment change? Would you still offer adjuvant pembrolizumab in that scenario?
3: Yes, of course, I think that's, that's the, the, the better benefit that has already 0.29. So I have no doubt with this patient that in the past, we didn't know what to do. We sometimes were thinking, like, should we treat these patients because they are um, metastatic, but they will remove all them, all the meds. So, and we had that trial with pazopanib that didn't demonstrate anything in, in with the antiangiogenics in the metastatic setting. But now with the pembrolizumab, I'm, I'm sure that I would offer the. the I'm very convinced the adjuvant treatment.
1: So if you've been to these programs before, we know we make the scenario progressively more and more challenging as we go along. So let's say this was a patient who decided they didn't like Boston. I can't blame them. They decided to move out <laughs> to the West Coast, to Los Angeles. And they came and saw me. And my fellow, Dr. Zengen, actually sees the patient and actually takes the pathology slides you know, uh, downstairs and says, wait a minute. Now, this is actually a papillary tumor, in fact. so, so we read
0: it wrong. The morale <laughs> no, of the not- story, Boston doesn't know pathology.
1: <laughs> so let's say this was a papillary kidney cancer instead, Pedro. What would you do in that scenario? So again, same scenario, let's imagine high risk yeah. localized. Let's go just stick with localized here. In that particular scenario, the histology was papillary, would you offer adjuvant therapy and if so what? So no lung met, right? No lung okay, met. Okay, because
2: yeah. we wouldn't miss the spot in the lung if he was to see in Cleveland. <laughs> Just, <you> know, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> so right now we don't have, in my opinion, you know, solid data for, to support adjuvant therapy. So in non-clear cell histologies, we are not, outside of trial, we're not offering adjuvant therapy. So I would not offer him um,
1: you know, um, adjuvant pembro in that situation. Yeah okay you would you would not correct i would not yeah. yeah in the absence of metastatic disease yeah tony what do you think
0: i would actually uh, suggest it and and i would say I, I would suggest that i think the risk of recurrence is very high the reason is you know you have to have a discussion with the patient so this will be kind of unlabeled because the approval was in kidney cancer but a bit of you know academic discussion because keynote 564 did not enroll patients patient with papillary renal cell cancer so the only closed data here and this is you know comparing a bit apples red apples to green apples so you know i i don't know uh, apples from boston to apples from la <laughs> is that uh, we do have data in um, pembrolizumab in papillary metastatic papillary RCC patient untreated first line and the response mm-hmm. rate you know sure. it's not like chromophobe is around it's 30 close. to 40 percent so you know if the patient it, it's not completely um you know out of context to provide it knowing that and that's where i may disagree a bit with pedro i will bet they will probably almost mm-hmm. never be a study of Pembrolizumab or IO strictly in papillary RCC. This is a study that impossible to recruit unless every center on earth open it. Uh, but it's, it's a tough call because Pembrolizumab, every systemic therapy, especially if this patient is cured by the beautiful hands of Dr. Taylor, then you know there is a toxicity.
1: Sounds like you've got a comment on that, Pedro. No, I was thinking in that situation. You know,
2: um, if he had the lung spot, which I thought that was your question. You know, then the question. Then if he were to come to us, I probably would say I probably would get systemic therapy up front. And yeah. then, yes, we would have, that's what I would that's, have done, right? Yeah. Actually, I would do an IOTKI. Yeah. You know, I would not, I agree with you, McDermott data, Pembroke, but actually, I think we have even better data with IOTKI. Not just the Cabo from, from Monty, but also Cabo for instance, right? We have Cabo Nivo and Pam. I would actually go a treatment induction up front. So I use the Sage 4 as an excuse, find me my good actors, and then perform a debulk nephrectomy at later time, and maybe address the lung. But I would give him a trial of systemic therapy, that's and I would feel very comfortable doing that.
0: Interesting approach. What about Spain where there is nothing approved?
3: <laughs> you need to mention that. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. But we have apples. <laughs> so yeah, in Spain we have no choice. So we, would, we wouldn't be able to, to give any adjuvant therapy to this patient. But anyway, if I could, I see Tony's point but with no meds, it would be, for me, a little bit difficult to suggest the adjuvant treatment. I'm
1: kind of with you. I'm somewhere in between you guys. So, so let's say this patient ultimately decides to go back to Boston, right? They, they miss Tony, <laughs> they miss Dr. Salidi out there. Um, and let's say the pathology gets re-reviewed a second time, and now it's not papillary anymore. It's chromophobe, okay? <laughs> and this happens. We see localized chromophobe, right? And high-risk localized chromophobe. So in that scenario, Pedro, what would you do? I mean,
2: I, I again, I'm a data-driven person. I would not consider again, assuming there's no, no there's no disease beyond the, the kidney. I would get a great surgeon to perform surgery, and you know,
1: fingers crossed. Okay, that, I think that's totally fair. Now, this this is a scenario that I see kind of coming up more and more. So let's take that patient. Dr. Sleedy's identified a one-centimeter lung nodule. Sleepy. You've cut it out. Okay. All right. And you, instead of that one-centimeter lung nodule popping up at the same time as the nephrectomy. Let's say that lung nodule popped up three years later. Three years later, okay? So the patient had surgery in 2020 for their kidney. They had surgery for their lung in 2023. In that scenario, Christina, would you offer adjuvant Pembroke?
3: Clear cell or? Clear cell, yeah. clear cell. Yeah, I think so, but at the end, it's a systemic disease. So it's, it's a different systemic disease than the one you have with when you have a synchronous med, but at the end, it's systemic disease. So I think I would offer anyway.
1: So three years later, because, you know, in the yeah. trial, they kind of I, stuck with that. I see the that. point
3: that it's not the one year of that, but, yeah,
1: why not? Well, what do you think, Petro? Um, I would probably be lean
2: towards um, offering. i will making sure it's one, it's not two or three, you know, because then yeah. my discussion would be what kind of systemic therapy I would offer, and instead of resecting. But, you know, mat, right, recurrence, a late recurrence, three years later, one spot. I would have that conversation about considering adjuvant Pember
1: for a patient with clear cell. Okay, and you're our tiebreaker, Tony, so. We'll three years? Seen. Three years, three years later.
0: Uh, I would not actually.
1: OK, OK. So you are you pretty staunch in that sort of one year threshold? Right, one to
0: two because you know the data we generated from the old times in, in, in Cleveland, and we have some Cleveland alumni here, uh, shows that um, it's between one to two years. So we picked the one year. Uh, because that's the highest risk of recurrence. But there is data within two years. I think more, the risk becomes low. You can, in theory, uh, do it. Because again, the approval, at least in the US, the blanket approval, make you do it. But I will take my chances after two years. Within two years, I'll do it, knowing that one to two years is outside keynote 564. The new study, (coughs) Pembrohef two, allows up to two years.
1: Okay. Okay, fair enough. But, so, yeah. I, I mean, I, it's a tough question, and I think there's sort of a gray zone. I've seen lots of different modes of practice in my area. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Suarez, who's uh, as, actually the uh, senior researcher at Dal Hebron and is doing just tremendous work in the field of kidney cancer. We've done a lot of studies together over the years, and I'm really excited you were able to come out for this program.
3: Thanks, Don and um, Monty. So, I am going to talk about first-line therapy. And as you all know, the better knowledge of the biology in RCC has dramatically changed the outcome of our patients. So in the past, before 2005, when we didn't know the anti pathway and the mTOR pathway, we were supposed to live in the dark age with the cytokines. Patients live around one, one year. With the arrival of targeted therapy, especially with anti-angiogenic treatment, we were supposed to or came enter into the modern age where patients and Have live around um, 30 months, and we have some um, patients with long survivors. We are now living in the golden age where the IO combinations have replaced the monotherapy that with TKI, and we will have around 50, 50% of patients that will be long survivors, and our overall survival, median overall survival is around five years, and we are. We aim, we aim to arrive to the diamond age where around 80% of our patients would be long survivors. So, what are these different combinations? Uh, as you all know, we have two, two, um, two options IOIO IO or IO anti BGF. We are going to start by IOIO. IO. You all know the checkmate to one for trial. The checkmate to one for trial include patients with um, metastatic or advanced clear cell um, carcinoma or com- component of. Clear, or if clear cell component. They were stratified by INDC and region. And patients were randomized to receive nivolumab, plus for, um, for, for doses, and followed by nivolumab versus sunitinib. Here, the primary endpoints, so and this is a difference with the rest of the trial, were PFS, OS, and overall response rate in the intermediate and poor-risk patients. So this trial was positive for overall survival in the intermediate and poor-risk patients this is the last median follow up with five year with five median um, uh, follow up of five years and in the ITT population they it had a very similar results the february um, patients did not achieve this benefit with ibilimab nivolumab and the same happened with pfs this trial was positive for its one of its primary endpoints that um, PFS in intermediate and poor risk patients. Again, in the ITT population, similar results to the intermediate poor risk patients, but again, no benefit in the favorable, favorable risk patients. What about um, overall response rate? Overall response rate was higher with the combination. It was 42% in the intermediate poor risk patients and, and for NIVO EP versus 27% with uh, sunitinib. In the the favorable risk patients, uh, um, the response rate was higher with sunidinib. But a higher proportion of patients achieved complete responses with nevolumab plus ipilimumab versus sunidinib, regardless of the risk. So even in the favorable risk group, patients achieved more complete responses with the combination of nevolumab and ipilimumab. And what about the median duration of response? So median duration of response was notably longer with the combination in, all, in the all three populations. And in fact, in the intermediate and poor risk patients that was the primary endpoint, Even it is all, despite being the trial with the longest uh, follow-up, the median duration of response has not been reached. And this is something important and we will talk about later. And an improved long-term quality of life was also observed in these five years follow-up. So, it's important to know that immune-related adverse events can occur at any time, and but we know that usually the immune-related, um, immune-related adverse events follow this pattern. There are some some adverse events that occur at the very beginning, like skin uh, skin adverse events, colitis, pneumonitis, or um, or liver toxicity. Usually occur in the middle of uh, in the middle of the treatment, and. Other, other adverse events, like nephritis, usually occur in patients that have been, been um, treated for a long time. Usually, all, the, all these um, adverse events will be resolved in a relatively short time. But there are one, that is, uh, one adverse event that is endo- endocrinopathy that will probably the patients will probably need to live all their lives with it. And this is important to know. So it's important to explain patients what they can um, what the things or symptoms they can have and how to, it's important to identify these immune-related adverse events and to make patients understand what can happen. Because patients be, will be more likely to adhere to treatment when they have a full picture of these uh, immune-related adverse events. So moving forward to the other option, so you, you, as you all know, the other option we have is an IO combination with an anti-BGF. All the trials have a, a very uh, a similar um, key eligibility criteria: newly diagnosed RCC with a clear cell component, no previous system, uh, no, no previous systemic therapy, sorry, were stratified by IMDC and geographic region. And patients all in, in all these three trials that, at, um, that, ha, um, that demonstrate overall survival had the same comparator, as you know, that was sunitinib. And the combination R were pembrolizumab plus axitinib, nivolumab plus cavosantinib, or pembrolizumab plus lembatinib. Uh, starting with the K-Node 426 that compared pembrolizumab plus axitinib versus uh, sunitinib, the primary endpoints, it had two, two co-primary endpoints that were PFS and overall survival, in the ITT population, and, was, and this trial, as you all know, was positive for its two, these two primary endpoints. And regarding, again, the overall response rate was 60% versus 40%, with the combination versus um, sunitinib, and the complete response rate was 10% versus 3.5%. Quality of life outcomes were not, very, were not different in this, uh, in this trial. And um, progression-free survival, too, that it's defined the time that the patient eats um, since, uh, since the patient starts until he needs to start the following line of therapy or dies or uh, whichever of course first was longer for patients in the pembrolizumab plus axitinib um, group. We will have an update presented by Brian Rene of the five-year analysis and follow-up. Moving forward, moving to the um, TechMain9ER, as you know, that was nivolumab plus cabozantinib. The primary endpoint in this case was progression-free survival, and overall survival was a secondary endpoint. This trial was positive for both um, for both endpoints. And interestingly, in the in the last uh, follow-up, nivolumab plus cabozantinib arm improved by 12 months since the previous um, data cut. So overall response rate, again, uh, uh, was higher in the, in the combination, 55% versus 28%, with, a, with 12% of patients achieving complete responses. Median duration of response was 23 uh, months. Patient-reported uh, outcomes maintained or improved um, along the time with nivolumab plus cabozantinib, especially in the, in the delay of uh, or time to, to deterioration. And regarding exploratory analysis, especially biomarkers, PFS benefit was um, was independent of pdl one or MET status, and the selecting expression signature used in other trials uh, was didn't demonstrate any predictive um, value, value in with nivolumab plus cabozantinib and PDL1 was prognostic in this trial was, but was not predictive for the for the treatment so PDL1 should not uh, drive clinical de- um, decisions we knew as uh, we we know like that um, or we knew before this trial that oral response rate has a directly relationship with outcomes in, in RCC we knew from the TKI era we knew from ipilimumab nivolumab and we showed in this trial as well so patients that Achieve better responses had better outcomes in overall survival and PFS. This year will be pre- presented tomorrow um, new data by David Sella regarding uh, quality of uh, life. And finally, the CLEAR trial, you know, that has a different different design with three arms: pembrolizumab plus lenvatinib, pembrolizumab plus everolimus, and sunitinib. But we are going to focus on the pembrolizumab plus Lembatinib arm. The primary endpoint here in this case was PFS, and again, OS was a secondary endpoint, but this was a <laughs> positive trial for both endpoints. Overall response rate was really high, was 71%, with 17% of patients achieving complete responses. Median duration of response in this trial was 26 months. So in the clear trial, the PFS was, uh, benefit was seen across um, all the risk group, and a large proportion of patients, around one-third of patients, could complete the two years. And quality of life results demonstrated similar or, um, or favorable uh, scores in patients in the dalembatinib uh, plus pembrolizumab um, arm, um, especially uh, respect with the time to definitive deterioration. So, final um, analysis of OS will be presented as, um, as well on, on Monday, and um, with an OS benefit, uh, they maintain the OS benefit and the PFS benefit, and the overall response rate was greater again with lembatinib pembrolizumab with similar data that we have um, before. So what about next generation trials? So one of them we have already published by Tony, so if you have any questions, maybe you should ask him, the Cosmic <laughs> 313 trial. And it was at the first trial in first line that com- comparing a triplet and the first uh, with nivolumab ipilimumab plus cavantinib and the first trial where, where the comparator arm is and a doublet is nivolumab plus ipilimumab and it was a positive trial that has been published last, last month in new england for its primary endpoint that was progression free survival with overall survival data immature there are um, many trials trying different strategies and are other trials trying and um, triples like the umbrella trial. But I think that these two trials, it's important to mention the pedigree. I think Tony has something to say about the pedigree as well. Um, and with, with a very, very smart design. And this is a trial with uh, adaptive design and starting with nivolumab plus ipilimumab, plus, um, ipilimumab followed by nivolumab plus cabozantinib depending on the response. Maybe Tony can explain with more detail. And the Lightspark 12 trial that is exploring belzutifan plus Lembatinib plus Pembrolizumab. So another, another uh, triplet. Sometimes coping with uh, adverse events um, from IOTKI can be difficult, especially because some of them can overlap, like rash, diarrhea, hepatitis, and hypoturidines. So maybe a, a good strategy is to hold the TKI as it has a shorter half-life than the checkpoint inhibitors. So if symptoms resolve in a few days, TKI was likely um, the cause. And if the symptoms don't clear up, maybe probably it's the IO causing these symptoms. So in summary, we have four trials that uh, that demonstrate overall survival in first line. They have um, comparable or similar results in hazard ratios in OS or PFS. Trials with TKIO uh, with a BGF-containing regimen have higher overall response rate, but the only trial with IOIO, the nivolumab trial, has the longest median duration of response as is the only trial with the median duration of response has not been reached. And this is a very interesting work. And I really like this work. I really like work with patients. So this, is, this aims to understand the patient's point of view regarding adverse events and how we manage adverse events. So of this trial, for me, the interesting thing is that most of the patients didn't ask the doctor for, to reduce the dose of the, of the TKI. And this is probably due because they were concerned. They were worried about look like reducing efficacy if they reduce the dose. So I think it's very, very important to encourage the patients to report any adverse event right away so we can manage adverse events in an earlier stage and induce um, or or including adjustment of of the dose. And this will allow patients to keep receiving an effective treatment as long as possible and maintaining the quality of life. And I think now, Monty has a case for us.
1: Well done, Dr. Suarez. That was terrific. Thank you. And again, awesome job on timing, too. We've got lots and lots of time for some really tough questions. Um, So we're going to start with a clinical scenario. So uh, this is that same patient that we discussed previously, who actually was resected and ultimately did quite well. Um, After 24 months, uh, imaging showed three enlarging lung nodules, and we're going to imagine a scenario here where she did not receive adjuvant therapy, okay? So this was a couple years ago before the approvals came around. So after 24 months, she has these three enlarging lung nodules. Now, she's classified here as being favorable risk. Her hemoglobin is 12, KPS is 90, neutrophils and platelets are normal. What treatment options would you favor, and before we get to that, we, we have this concept of favorable, risk, disease that we're discussing in the context of this patient. We have a great question from the audience here, who asks, you know, how often do you actually use that term favorable, intermediate, and poor when you discuss with patients? Uh, maybe i will start with you, uh, Christina, since you gave us that lovely talk. Do you actually use that terminology as you're reflecting on uh, patient uh, conversations?
3: Uh, sometimes, but. Usually, um, if they, I, I don't know if, yeah, I explain more or less patients what are the, the classification, but sometimes it's, at least depending on the patient, it's difficult for them to understand what, it, what I'm meaning. And especially if, if he's going, or she's going to be a poor risk patient, maybe he doesn't want to hear that. So I have a, I have a case like um, some months ago that they, they can't see their own history in the, in, from their house. And one patient asked me, what do you mean that I have a poor risk um, disease? Because I, I never explained her. And she read in my notes that when I put at the beginning, poor risk. So I don't know. I, I think it's. I use it when I, patients, for example, are on surveillance, favorable risk patients that are on surveillance, then I explain them. What's why, I, why
1: they aren't so You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and you're, you're hitting on something I, I like. You know, using the term favorable in my conversation with patients. I, I hate using that term poor, and I find it to be really discouraging. Right. You know, when I'm trying to sort of outline potential outcomes and so forth. Um, so then, reflecting on the scenario here, Pedro. I'm going to ask you a question, and this is, you know, sure. we, we've already talked about the various indications for the TKI IO regimens and IO plus IO, but let's say you have a patient who walks in and says to you, I really want to get nivolumab and nipilimumab, you know, in a scenario like this. How does that conversation look? I mean, some yeah. patients do come in with that perception of just wanting to get immunotherapy alone, right? Right, so as, so
2: as Christina pointed out, right, uh, you know, um, we do de- we did develop a 214, you know, epinevo trial, uh, p- focusing on intermediate and poor risk. But to be honest, uh, my question to you, Monty, was am I treating this patient 2017 or 2023? Because I actually w- would offer epinevo to this patient, right? Now as you know, you know, we're, we're, you know it's, it's um, a question mark whether or not we will do it today in the, in the favorable risk just based on, based on the trial, if you will. Do I think uh, it would be appropriate to offer epinevo to this patient? Oh, absolutely yes. Right? So, I think that's appropriate. So, now the thing is, you know, when you look at the endpoints, it's a composite endpoint, if you will. You're looking for intermediate and poor risk. And then when you look at good risk, we know these patients do well no matter what we do. Right? And I think that's one important message. And so, we're coming out of this meeting and we see these, you know, updated follow-ups for all the trials, right? You know. <clears throat> I think it's really relevant. Now we're at six years with ipinivo, five years with Pembroke and so forth, and the others to follow. Just by you know when we develop those studies, I think actually we need longer follow-up for the good risk, because if you look at the medians, right, you know you really need to know you really need to see what's going on beyond year four, year five, year six, right? And so you know my conversation with them always or still includes an IO-based approach. I for the most part, right? It's not this patient, but if I have a patient where I do believe that survival is not impacted by kidney cancer, that's the the only cases where, or the disease is not, is moving, because the disease is not moving, I even think about active It's not this situation, but I'm just, you know, uh, telling you how you walk, how I walk through this case. But, you know, in some cases where I do believe survival is not impacted by kidney cancer, that's what I'm thinking a TKI monotherapy might play a role. That is the minority of the times. Minority oh, okay. of the times. Okay. In most of the times, even though you have a more dominant of an angiogenic signature, we do know that actually the responses including CR rates uh, with an IO-based approach like ipinivo in the good risk are actually quite good. You know, it's double digits for CR rate, for example, et cetera. So I, I'm not shocked at all that some of us actually do epinevo including the good risk. I just, by virtue of how the trial was designed and I actually think that IO TKI, they do perform very well as well. But, you know, I, that's actually one of the areas where after I do IMDC, I spend perhaps a little bit more time because I have to go through all the options, and I would argue that there's a number of valid
1: options for that case. Okay, so you're suggesting we could do an EVO EP or I, we could I, do a TKI? Or it could do TK. So for this particular, you want to say in general, <laughs> yeah. in right? general, favorable in, risk. What in would general, you
2: do? that's how I walk yeah. through. Now I select a little bit of the, or, or yeah. let me rephrase that. I phrase the conversation where I'm more likely to consider, right? So if you ask me the question for this, for this case, right, in front mm-hmm. of us, right, she had this patient had bad, bad ass cancer to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. Like you look at that tumor, that looks ugly, right? So to me, you know, even though the, the recurrence happened two years later. I don't think this would be a patient I would watch. For example, I don't think I would offer TKI monotherapy in this patient. In this patient who recur with liver meds, but you know with lung meds, excuse me. So I would definitely consider an IOIO or an IO TKI. I feel very com- very comfortable with an in this setting. That's kind of what I'm tending to do more recently. Yeah. But if someone comes and say, you know, I'm going to do epinevo and then save it
1: for later. I, I, I wouldn't be shocked. I, you know, I think TKI IO is kind of the way that I'm steering, and it's hard for me not to sort of think about this biologically. And you sort of alluded to this. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think about when you know, sort of Tony and Danny were coming up with the IMDC algorithm for us, right? And it really did select out those patients that benefited from VEGF directed therapies, maybe more of an angiogenic population. So for those reasons, I, I think ultimately we're probably on the same page. I'm leaning primarily towards VEGF IO. I mean, Tony, what are your thoughts?
0: And there is nothing nothing left for me or anyone to say after Pedro's, <laughs> you know, boy, yeah. he went over RCC in general. Yeah. You know, I mean, first, do I discuss IMDC uh, risk factor in patient? I mean, no. But what we discuss is patients, you know, if they have some factors at baseline when they see us, that could impact the prognosis more than Anything else so you, you you have to use language that is extremely At least in tune with patient and I think with KcQ and Dina we understand how much the language Is so important for patient because you know imagine if you start seeing patients say oh, you're poor risk What does that mean should I just <coughs> sign my I mean, that's not how we this is great for papers but it stops there I think in this patient with, you know favorable risk. If they're not surgical candidate, let me repeat, those three enlarging lung nodule two years later could be in the right lower lobe, for example. Um, if they're not surgical candidate, they would need systemic therapy, assuming this is clear cell RCC, and while. Um, IOIO meaning niveau IP is not wrong here because now after five years follow up, we know that the hazard ratio for OS and favorable risk is less than 1, is 0.94. So you, you're not hurting and you gain you lose on PFS, you lose on PR, partial responses, you gain on CR 12% versus um, you know 3% or 2%. But as a reminder, Uh, TKIIO, especially with Cabo and Pembrolen in the favorable, the CR rate, you know, are north even of uh, 10% higher. Uh, So, and based on the response rate and the PFS benefit, I bought that as my paradigm in the favorable risk, and I do VEGFIO over IOIO. Unless I have really a reason not to use a VEGFIO or a patient that motivated, very young, I can give, you know, one shot. Here I would use veg
1: So we're gonna speed things up a little bit here and I'm gonna change up the clinical scenario. So let's assume this patient actually presented with de novo metastatic disease, meaning at the time that you noticed their primary kidney lesion, you saw that they had multiple lung metastases. Let's say this particular patient had bone metastases as well. And this relates to several of the questions that we're, we're getting in the submitter today. You know, in a patient like that, uh, Christine, I'll, I'll throw this one at you. you know, let's say the patient doesn't necessarily have symptoms from the primary tumor, no pain, no bleeding, or anything of that sort. How are you thinking through cytoreductive nephrectomy? Are you offering it to everybody? Is it something you consider sort of on only on an as-needed basis for urgent cases?
3: I think it's a very interesting question, because before the Carmina trial, we were performing nephrectomy to everybody. Now we are not performing nephrectomy to any, anybody. So I think um, if there are no symptoms, um, we should uh, start with systemic therapy. But what we are realizing now is that it's very difficult to achieve a complete response if you have the primary tumor um, there. So I think we should uh, start reconsidering and reevaluating the patients. And maybe if they, uh, because I have many patients like with these new combinations and especially in, in, in trials that they have a complete response in the meds but they still have like eight centimeters of the, prim- in the primary tumor. So, and we know that complete responses are re- and directly, um, it has a directly relationship with the, with the outcomes with the overall response rate and PFS. So maybe I think we should start considering delayed nephrectomies in these patients with, at least in patients with good responses.
1: I, I tend to
2: agree with you. What do you think, Pedro? Well, uh, that's a perfect segue to the trial that I was about to highlight. I love that <laughs> approach. You s- offer an induction of systemic therapy up front, and you select the good actors from the bad actors. In other words, it's a person where you will know likely they're going to benefit. So you basically highlight an important concept that I believe you know that we st- we, st- we do see that the response in the primary tumor se- tends to be 20 to 30% yeah. less yeah. than what happens elsewhere. Exactly. Right? And so you, you got to deal with something. So when you start someone with Systemic therapy, whatever IO-based approach you consider, and you recheck after three or four months, right? You know, and the patient is doing great, good response. Patient got you got control control of the disease. You really want to take that out. Yeah. There's actually a trial doing that, we, yeah. at least we're Probe. part of Probe, yeah. you know, that's literally asking that question. And I really think it makes a lot of sense. And to be honest, we have participating in that trial. There's a big effort from the cooperative. A lot of our colleagues are doing it. And to be quite fair, you know, I cannot think of a patient that not benefited from that strategy. So I really think as we move forward, thinking about systemic therapy first as a way to control the disease and then coming later on and address the primary tumor mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense and I do believe we're helping people
1: I think that makes a lot of sense no now, I want to go I told you we're gonna get progressively harder with these cases right I want to go to a scenario that we haven't talked about yet but was brought up earlier so let's take the same scenario that you see up here on the screen okay so the patient you know had a resection but then subsequently had received adjuvant pembrolizumab okay I'm gonna play through a couple of scenarios for you okay Let's say this patient has, again, localized clear cell disease, T3, right? Okay. You put them on adjuvant pembrolizumab, which is what we said we might do when we were discussing this patient earlier. And let's say they actually progress with new lung nodules while they're on adjuvant pembrolizumab. Let's say this happens about nine months into therapy, and you know, we're starting to see that, right? I mean, it's, it's happening in our clinics. So, Tony, what are you doing in scenarios like that? Are you giving TKI monotherapy? Are you giving combo therapy? What's your approach?
0: You know, I think uh, pr- progression uh, while on, and we should say tumor progression, not patients progressing. Tumor progression while on adjuvant or while on therapy, to me, that equal uh, progression on like metastatic diseases and you know I think here it will be very hard to justify re-challenging uh, with an IOB however I would argue that atezolizumab it's a pd one inhibitor etc we're seeing a practice all over the place we're seeing people uh, physicians and providers switching to single-agent TKI I've seen pazopanib. I've seen a lot of cabozantinib I've seen folks uh, challenging with nivo And we know that, at least based on uh, fraction RCC, there's a response rate of 17%, certainly way less than nivo untreated patient. Right. And I've seen folks, folks adding, continuing Pembro and adding axitinib or lenvatinib.
1: So because we're short on time, you tell me what you do. What do you do in clinic for a patient like this?
0: I switch to single agent TKI.
1: Christina, short answer here, what do you do? If I could. <laughs> if you could.
3: If I could. Maybe if it's in a, this short time and after the contact 03 results, I would choose uh, TKI monotherapy. Pedro, do you have TKI consensus
1: monotherapy. There? TKI monotherapy. So we've got consensus there. So let's make this a little tougher and then we're going to move on. But let's say this patient, I, I think it's pretty obvious what we do if the recurrence happens three, four years mm-hmm. later, right? I mean, that's yeah. like a patient who's got a newly evolved disease state, right? You can rechallenge challenge with IO. Let's say this happens a year and a half out, right? That's what I really struggle with, right? So they finish their adjuvant therapy and then six months later, right? When you expect that immune therapy to still be kicking, working, right? right. Then they progress at that time frame. What would you do then? We'll start in the other way. Petra, short answer. Yeah, I probably would go an in IOTKI in that case probably. Okay, six months?
3: Yeah, it will probably the the CIC, um, task force decide or, or they established twelve weeks to consider a patient resistant to IO or not, which I think it's too short. But maybe six months, I would consider an IO TKI. I don't, I don't know. <laughs>
1: okay, and Tony, for I the... would I would
0: do TKI only. I don't know. Uh, my limit is one year. After one year, I you know rechallenge with IO. I could be wrong. The only difference is Nivo IP based on the phase two. It wouldn't be wrong to use NIVO-EPI based on the Phase two uh, fraction RCC.
1: Excellent. And I just want to point out we have a star in the room. Dr. Ibrahimi uh, is one of my fellows who's going to be discussing what I think is you know potentially a novel avenue in kidney cancer therapy. We're going to be looking at uh, Cabo-NIVO with this uh, live bacterial product called CBM-588 in a special clinical science symposium on Sunday. Um, so I encourage you all to come to her talk then. It should be some interesting science. And I'm gonna transition it over to Bossman. Tony, you don't need an introduction, do you? Uh, he taught me uh, everything I know about kidney cancer, honestly, uh, professor and the head of the Lank Center for Genity urinary Oncology at Harvard. Uh, just a tremendous force in the field and a wonderful mentor, Tony.
0: Oh, very, very kind of you, Monty. So um, thank you. What about the refractory setting? So we went with early stage, systemic with adjuvant, neoadjuvant, first line untreated patient metastatic, now metastatic. Uh, refractory setting and that's the uh, disease algorithm depending on what did you get before and what country you live in sadly so if you receive vegftki monotherapy we still see it even in the us usually nivolumab or cabozantinib based on an os uh, benefit from the two phase three trial io io combination we seen mostly in term of uh, Uh, paradigm VEGF monotherapy and this is illustrated in a consensus led by Dr. Uh, Kim uh, Ratmel uh, from Vanderbilt. If you get VEGF immunotherapy combination, usually it's the VEGF TKI you did not get. Also we see practices all over. And if you get oligoprogression on immunotherapy and I would say even on TKI for you know whatever reason you get local therapy and that makes sense and makes sense in many solid tumor actually whether radiation ablation excision we have it at our place we have everything but uh, you know in other places you know you do have surgery sometimes yeah. you don't have those options what about other uh, drugs here are part of uh, The therapies, the arsenal that we use in uh, refractory population. I want to give your attention here to Tivazenil. Important to remember the study. Maybe it didn't get a lot. This study, you've been involved with Monty, uh, Brian, Dave McDermott, and others. This is a patient uh, population uh, whose tumor progressed on two or more systemic therapy, including, most important, Regif TKI. This was a study where all the studies before were against Everolimus in that setting of uh, monotherapy or combination. Here, it is with sorafenib. It's VEGFTKI. 350 patients, so smaller if you want randomized phase 3 trial, randomized one-to-one. And you can see the benefit in terms of progression, free survival that favored tivazanib versus uh, sorafenib. And you can see also the tail of the curve with a proportion of patients that is, I would argue, clinically relevant, that are progression-free after three and four years, with um, activity across all subgroups that were tested, uh, tivazanib is a strong, it's a clean VEGF TKI. Not surprisingly, the side effects are especially uh, hypertension, fatigue, but especially, you know, hypertension here. Um, and overall, it has been better uh, tolerated. If you look at the subgroup of patients, this is more recent trial that get prior immune checkpoint inhibitor. The effect is even uh, slightly uh, you know, better. Now, if you make it to 12 months, and there are biases when we look at such uh, curves, when we assume you made it uh, to a year, and um, we look at survival after that, now things get even better here patient on Tivazanib continue uh, Tivazanib and do well. Now, one thing with Tivazanib, Tivazanib initially get a bad rap out of a study uh, that uh, pinned it against Serafinib, but in untreated population because of the hazard ratio for overall survival, and I'm not gonna you know, go uh, through this. There was issues with crossover and one arm versus the other. But if you look at different cutoff here with Tivo3, in refractory patients, the hazard ratio for overall survival has been always less than 1 and even maturing now less than uh, 0.9. So a consistent response rate, consistent PFS, that's the primary endpoint with stivazenib over uh, sorafenib. With potentially improving OS at this point, it's not uh, significant. Uh, tivazinib have been also combined with uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor. Here with nivolumab, an untreated patient, a medium PFS around uh, 19 months. I would say this is a very good PFS compared to uh, what we have. Patients were either treated or previously untreated. And based on the safety from that combination, we launched a study actually that close to Accrual yesterday t 2, 2 is a very important phase three trial. I would say it's the PD-1 version of CONTACT-3, where patients patient whose tumor progress after immune checkpoint inhibitor get Tivozanib or Tivozanib plus a PD-1 inhibitor here in nivolumab. So with CONTACT-3, it's the TKI plus a pdl one inhibitor. We heard the press release from CONTACT-3, it's negative. But here with a PD-1 inhibitor study, Finish accrual. Uh, you know, other combination approach with lemvatinib here and uh, pembrolizumab. Again, the interesting thing here in patients that are treatment naive, that's great. We have data from CLEAR. But in ICI pretreated, 104 patients, 55% response rate. Now, is this pembrolen or this len alone? Certainly not pembro alone. That remains to be seen. I would say, you know, we don't know at this point. This is a combination that Dr. Pal led, combining atezolizumab with cabozantinib, and based on this, we launched Contact 3 uh, study that both Monty and I led. Excellent responses in clear cell RCC patients that were previously untreated. And you may say, wait a second here. So why didn't you go? Why did you go to previously treated patient? I think because, I mean, to be honest with you. What do you do? How do you launch a first-line first, first line trial, let's say, with a vegf What will your control arm be? You cannot do single-agent TKI. The unmet medical need is inpatient post-checkpoint inhibitors here. Now, there are strategies here that I do want you to um, understand they're coming, especially if the trials are positive, if two inhibition. Um, HIF2 is a transcription factor, it's not on the cell surface, very hard to target, you know, but uh, elegant work uh, showed that it can be targeted uh, with a molecule here that went through uh, letters and numbers to uh, more letters and numbers, and now to a full name, Belzutifen. That molecule was used in VHL syndrome, a disease that is characterized by uh, uh, alteration in germline VHL in germline uh, alteration in the VHL gene, and renal cell cancer as well as other lesion, and show the response rate really in the north of 50 uh, percent. But here in clear cell uh, renal cell cancer, we led light spark 1 that showed the response rate of 25 percent. Those are patients, you know, with three prior line of therapy with a total monotherapy in new, totally new class of agent a medium PFS of 14 months kind of interesting waterfall plot. I mean, you see waterfall plot or just, you know, everything up, fountains, you know, nothing in between. This is different than a, a veg FTKI. We don't have a biomarker, but remember the name Belzutifen. Not approved in renal cell, in sporadic renal cell carcinoma, but we do have a trial, I wouldn't say underway, finished accrual some time ago, and hopefully over 700 patients versus Everolimus in Heavily pre-treated patient, uh, post-PD-1, post-VEGF. And if this trial is positive, you have two primary endpoints, PFS and OS, then you may have a new drug here to offer to patient. And we have combined this drug, belzutifan with a TKI, uh, cabozantinib. We found that it's combinable. There are responses. This is in patient um, you know, that uh, also heavily pretreated, 87% had a reduction in target uh, lesion size. And based on that, another study with a different TKI, Lemvatinib, and uh, in uh, Inpatient, a second-line treatment was launched against Cabozantinib, and that trial is actually enrolling. So this could be the future if something is uh, uh, positive here. Now, uh, update. A study at Belzutifan plus lenvatinib, so this is the TKI, this is based on the Phase 3 study. So Belzutifan 120 plus lymphema Lymvatinib, 20 milligram response rate of 50%. Those are in patients that heavily uh, pretreated before, and that justified, of course, especially with immediate NPFS of 11 months, small number of patients, but justifies the Phase 3 because everyone was saying, well, you have data, but it's with cabozantinib, you can't just do this interchange between TKI when you want and when it suits you. And at the same time, all these studies we learned it the hard way are collecting um, tissue, are collecting blood to test in real time or maybe just after a year or two signature. Uh, with Dr. Salibi, for example, in the audience here, we are looking at specific signature that on the with Phase 3 trial with vegF IO, IOIO, I-O, can test um, as well as cytokine. Your work cytokine biomarkers can test uh, you know a specific biomarker that has been discovered before, like with emotion 150 and 151 in novel uh, combinations. So stay tuned. Um, the paper w- will be ready even during ASCO, right? Okay. Uh, what about Carti? I think Monty was one of the first people. Uh, to push this, and this is, you know, ongoing, ongoing, strong, uh, but slowly, I would say slowly. Uh, I think here the kudos not just to you, Monty, and the City of Hope, but the uh, hematology team at the City of Hope. CAR T in solid tumor or even in liquid malignancies really is very hard. It takes. It's, it's I, I call it. I don't call it CAR T. I call it CAR team, uh, T tea for team, not just T cell. It's a Huge team of folks. So here uh, a compound. I uh, Want to highlight allo 316. Want to highlight because this, I believe, was just presented at uh, AACR not long time ago, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so this is an allogeneic off shelf anti uh, off the shelf anti CD70. CD70 is prevalent. That's the target on uh, RCC. A CAR team, uh, and here, it was used without any major ex- unexpected safety signals here. I don't want to go through the structure. What did they uh, knock down? What they're giving? Uh, how they're prepping? But usually, this is a minor difference uh, you know, among all those CARTs. But the CAR-T folks says there are major differences. To us, there are differences. But here, just to show you those 18 patients, Uh, interesting this is interesting because one infusion and you know either you have a response you have activity or not you don't have a combination with another potentially active agent that can muddy the water so interesting enough in all patients the response rate 17% I mean 3 out of 18 I would say no CRs I believe you know that's that's not bad a good disease control rate but when you look at those patients that are cd70 positive now the majority of patients 10 out of 18 are cd70 positive but not completely everyone suddenly the response rate is three out of ten i think this is very interesting so the work goes but just to let you know every time there's a new version of uh, car t's but these are here to stay one of the big problem we have when we get you know patient referral for car t or other uh, you know, car-based uh, cellular therapy is the patient have to be really fit, really committed. The slots are not always easy and uh, the technologies are changing very fast. But that's something to look at. Again, you know, I think we're all extremely uh, delighted but also humbled by the work that K-Secure and uh, Dina and uh, all the friends and... Uh, uh, fans of k secure do here this is a survey of over a thousand patients thousand patients with uh, with renal cell cancer almost 400 you know had uh, metastatic disease and what dina and her team here uh, wanted to show is that what are the patient priorities and expectations for systemic therapy let's say in patients that are battling kidney cancer not the first round but the second and the uh, you know third round. So you ask him question and, and what are the expectations from the patient? This is the patient's voice. And remember this is this is beautiful why this is not in the presence of physician, hopefully not in the presence of other family members, etc. This is the patient and themselves. So what the patient, you know, come with, and I'm not surprised here sometimes, but it's good to have evidence. Most patients are not familiar with their classification. Okay? Uh, although, it's important to know that even if you know don't, don't understand it, but I think for prognostic, uh, pro- prognostication, this is important. Now, patient, you may think they rank partial response, they rank the time of therapy. No, they rank complete response at the most important desired outcome for that when they considering treatment. Most of them, not all of them, you can see here the beautiful color in green and orange, and I would say green is the color of kidney cancer, although orange, you know, take over from, some, from time to time. And the patient perception for long-term response are different than their provider, than their doctors and their nurses. So this is very, very important to see how patient interact with the information, and they may be getting information, not just from their provider, and that's important. That's what. You know, that's what we're here for. And uh, the information outside the doctors and the provider are more and more to come. Not just the internet. They come from multiple ways. Sometimes they're not looking. It come to you if you Google something. Suddenly you have a treatment in your face. You know, I know we we shop for something and then suddenly uh, your page, you know, shows up. Um, What we tried also to do is that what are the important uh, trials here in progress that you can see at ASCO23 to highlight it uh, for you. I think these are important to see how things are uh, are going. Uh, one important trial is combining the hef 2 inhibitor we talked about with palbocyclip. That's a drug we use in breast cancer. It's a cdk 46 inhibitor. There is very elegant work, all preclinical and uh, animal uh, models from Dr. Bill Kalin. The, my colleague, my friend, who is the Nobel uh, 2019 um, Nobel Prize winner, based on his work in kidney cancer and uh, oxygen sensing, that hif 2 inhibitor and CDK4-6 uh, inhibitor should be and could be combined. So immediately this went to a trial that Dr. McDermott here is leading. I believe this trial is accruing. Will be very, very exciting to see the result soon. Uh, also, this is another uh, study here uh, that we changed a bit. 092. This is a new TKI in combination with nivolumab with ipilimab, the IL2. Although we're changing uh, that, but at least to know that there are some what we call combination uh, studies are ongoing where you take in and out some of the drugs and you continue with the backbone dr mckay one of my former uh, postdocs, she moved from boston to california because of you because of you Uh, but ucsd not at city of hope she's leading co-leading a randomized phase two study where she's interrogating radiation in the form of sabr stereotactic ablative radiation therapy we say always that radiation you know doesn't work in renal cell cancer where yes and no if you can go high on the dose in uh, untreated patients. That's the samurai trial. And finally, uh, you know, there is a nice study here with cabozantinib and nivolumab and uh, uh, lutetium gerontuximab uh, here in patient with advanced RC from Dr. Hassanov who moved from MD Anderson to WashU, I believe, recently. So you know, the field is actually um, in renal cell cancer full of hope, in my opinion. Uh, Monty, I think back to you, right? Yeah that, yeah,
1: that was terrific, Tony. Thanks a lot, my friend. Appreciate it. You know, just a, an editorial comment. It's hard not to look at those slides and actually get a little bit nostalgic because I saw your slide on, you know, CD70 targeting CAR T cells and so forth. And I just think about when I got my start in the field, it was actually thanks to Tony working on a compound called. XL184, and this was 17 years ago. Oh my gosh, yes. You know, I mean, Tony was so generous, pulled me into the phase one clinical trial, and I have two messages. One is that if you're an investigator sitting in the room, you know, it's just so critical, you know, that you have somebody who sort of takes you along for the ride the way that Tony's done for me, the way that we'd like to do for you know, Chris and Pedro sitting here. The other message is that I think there's a lot of hope, right? I mean, you think about, you know, this next wave of therapies that we're generating, entirely different mechanisms of action, whether it's HIF2 inhibitors or CD70-directed therapies. It's a very, very exciting time in kidney cancer. I think we're we're getting away from just looking at PD-1 and VEGF now, although those have been monumental improvements. Uh, you know, I think that this is this is just going to be an exciting decade or two for kidney cancer.
0: Absolutely, therapy. and you know, when you're old, when a drug that had no name, you know, becomes has a name, then there is a second generation of the same drug that has a new name, and you're like, you're you're in the field in this field for a long time now.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we're we're going to reflect on this scenario. So <laughs> we ultimately treated Maria. We're going to imagine in this scenario with an IO and TKI regimen. And this patient ultimately progressed with new and enlarging lung nodules and additional liver nodules. She has some concerns around quality of life and toxicity of therapy. Um, you, you can you can imagine whatever regimen you'd like in the frontline scenario, but just in the interest of time, let's do this. Just go ahead and sort of tell me what your preference would be in the frontline setting for a patient like this, and given that preference what would you necessarily use as sort of the second-line therapy? So I'll start. You know, I typically begin patients in a scenario like this on Cabo-Nivo. You know, there's patient's concerned about quality of life. I think that the data that Tony and others have presented really suggests that that's a regimen amongst the TKI-IO regimens that seems to stand out. Second-line setting, maybe this is a little bit controversial, but I actually tend to use Tevasinib in that second-line setting. If uh, the patient is frail, and many patients can be, I think it's a uh, very well-tolerated option. That tends to be sort of my mainstay. If the patient really needs aggressive therapy, I might use Lenev on everolimus, but I find that to be a more challenging regimen to tolerate for most of my patients. Um, so that, that's my approach. So again, what TKI-IO regimen would you typically start with? Again, let's leave nevo out of the equation right now. And then what would your second-line choice be? Let's, let's work down the aisle here. We'll start with you, Pedro. Yeah,
2: no, I think your options, I was thinking the same. I was debating what would I do, TiVo is an option, Axie would be another option, you know. I tend not to do every language right after IO, because I don't have a lot of data on that. I, nothing against F, right? But it's perhaps a little bit more toxic, just concerned about quality of life. You'd run a beautiful study, you know, showing a, a lower dose. So for all those reasons, I think, you know, between TiVo
1: and Axie probably would be my choice. Got it. Christina. what about you?
3: So the, the TKI that demonstrated better benefit was cabozantinib in some retrospective trial. And a trial is going to be presented tomorrow and when they, it's compared with other TKI's. But as you mentioned, if you use NIVO, CAVO in the first line, maybe TIVO would be a good option based on the TIVO-3 trial or yeah. a clinical trial. Fair enough. But that would be my choice.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Tony, what about you? I
0: would use the TKI that hasn't been used, you know, a single agent here. So if you haven't started by Nivo, you know then cabo becomes later let's say you started by pembro based regimen then definitely cabozantinib you're going to see some data of monotherapy the largest in a randomized from yeah. contact three i think tivazinib is very reasonable also and uh, i have seen some folks using nivolumab Ipilimumab. you know best but the response rate you know is 17 percent some durable uh, responses, but you know, in, in some situation, but certainly it wouldn't be uh, coming from a phase three standard.
1: So let's talk for a moment about and we, we all know the indications for it. We didn't really discuss it at length, you know, during our, our talk today, but for patients with germline VHL alterations uh, and RCC, very reasonable option in that context. But I'm starting to see this trickle of patients uh, in the community. Are gaining access to belzutifan right now for you know, somatic altered VHL, for instance, and so forth. And I just wanted to kind of get a perspective from you guys on that. And, you know, Tony, you've done a lot of work with belzutifan to date. Uh, what are your thoughts on that practice? And, and let's, let's imagine a scenario where you could potentially access it through compassionate use, et cetera, ahead of the phase three trial that you're leading. Well, when would you use it?
0: I mean, in later lines, I, we had some. Um... You know, luck overall. At least, I would say 50 percent. You know, putting the paper and appealing again. We were in the car discussing Pedro. You know, got a you know approval after three appeals takes a lot of time on us. That's how we spend part of our time. Um, but, uh, you know, later line, but the data come from 25 patients. We feel comfortable, I think, some of us, because we've used it as part of clinical trials. So we know the drug very well. So I feel comfortable one day. Uh, but, you know, I, I get it. Patient that can get on trial wants something with a tolerable and, you know, want to fight this. We're able to get it for some.
1: But I I think your point's well taken. There, it sort of comes after sort of the tried and true, tested regimens that we have, right? Mm -hmm. You know, based on available data. So, you know, I think that's a good message to kind of close on. And one of the themes that I've noticed is that we've all sort of, I think, come around to really support regimens that really do, you know, have good evidence to back them up, by and large. And I think that's a that's a good takeaway from the evening. Um, So, with that in mind, you know, we've gone through a lot of the questions that the audience tonight has actually uh, submitted through the portal, and uh, I hope most of you have gotten your questions answered through the course of the evening tonight. I do want to thank my outstanding panel here, Tony, Chris, Pedro, you guys have been amazing, and really a wonderful audience here tonight as well. Thank you for coming out, and enjoy your Astro. Thank you for listening.
0: Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash dgx860. This educational activity is supported by medical education grants from Aveo Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated, Asi Incorporated, Exelixis, Incorporated, and Merck & Company, Incorporated.